you can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and Keith isn't here because he's on holiday in LA. So uh, it's just me going solo on this one, but um, I'm happy to be talking to uh, Rob Wickens, who is a uh, colour grader, and um, you're also a, a writer, director, and producer. I am, yes. Um, hello, Simon. Hello, Rob. <laughs> I just um, we're sort of here talking about uh, grading because um, mm. I think there's a lot of people out there who um, are, would be interested to sort of uh, hear what you have to say on it, and um, and also the fact I think some people don't realise that um, there is um, this role called a colorist who mm. goes in and plays with like the look of the film. So. Um, Let's 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 start at the beginning. How did you become a grader? How did I? Well, I um, I started work at a post-production facility in Soho called TVP, which no longer exists, sadly, um, based in Golden Square. Um, and I kind of came up through the ranks, worked initially as a runner, and then moved into the um, the sort of dubbing VT area and became a, a senior operator there. But it was starting to get a little bit dull and a little bit boring. And there was a department that was always kind of sort of tucked away a little bit called the Telecine department, which basically was involved in transferring film to tape for various purposes, either for TV or for self-through video. And I got the opportunity to kind of move sideways and try out this 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 telecine lark and see what it was like so you know i did about a month six weeks or so of training um, made a few mistakes along the way but um kind of got into it that way and 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 really that's been my role ever since um so basically based around the idea of, of um, retasking or, or 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 moving film from from basic celluloid on onto uh, tape as it was then and data as it is now but essentially that role hasn't really changed that much okay what was the um the first film or tv show that you um you were sort of like a proper you know grader on oh crikey um well we used to do a lot of work for uh, a company called tartan video i don't know if you remember them at all. i do remember tartan video yes yeah who had a, had a good reputation for sort of um art house horror that kind of stuff yeah, um, they were the ones who released the John Woo films. That's correct. Yeah, so um, 
Well, well, that's that's a that's a, a, a bit of pride actually, because one of the the very early jobs I did for Tartan Video was um, the Killer. Oh wow! So I was one of the first people to actually see the Killer in the in the UK in the UK. So so basically, we got a show print in that we graded and transferred onto tape, and that was done for um, for sell through video. And that that was part of the fun of the job at the time because you did get to see a lot of this, um, a lot of really interesting kind of art house and bits and bobs like that um before really before anyone else pretty much saw them so so that was great fun oh wow i mean what other tartan uh titles did you work on because i i remember at the beginning of each uh video you had the tartan trailer where they had like cinema paradiso and mm. night living dead oh uh, crikey yeah well, loads and loads of different ones so uh, we had that contract for years so so pretty much everything that tartan put through um we did um memorable titles um i did man bites dog that was oh, that wow. was very yeah. good um clarks actually um okay. you know I, I, I really i think i was was one of the first first people in the uk to see to see clarks so yeah that that was that was quite good fun because it was a bit of a strange aspect ratio as well it'd been shot 166 which was um unusual at the time for uh certainly for, um, for sell-through video. So, so, you know, there was a little bit of a jiggery-pokery actually fr- trying to figure out what the, what the right aspect ratio was for that because it was never really on the cans or anything like that. It was just, oh, um, okay. it was just, you, you kind of had to sort of take your best guess and, you know, see if the headroom was right or, or if mics started popping into shot and things like that and then kind of go from there, really. <laughs> so was that, uh, was it more of like a, a square than uh, a rectangle? That's that. Um, well, no, no, a little bit more of a rectangle than four by three would be. So, oh, okay. so if you imagine, well, well, you know, TV ratio as was was one three three to one or four by three. So one six six would actually be closer to um, the super sixteen um, native aspect ratio. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, film there. geek, film geek. <laughs> so we're six minutes into the program and I'm already talking about aspect ratios. I, I do apologise. <laughs> it's only going to go downhill from here. You do that. <laughs> well, um, we just done um, an episode on um, Paul Verhoeven, and oh, right. I know that you uh, worked on uh, Black Book, which was his uh, film. The first film he made coming back from um, America. So, uh, what was that like to work on? That was really good fun. My my role on that was um, was kind of the dailies colorist. So, so basically, I'd be the guy that would be getting um, the film rushes in. I'd be transferring them, um, applying a look that Paul Verhoeven and his DOP at the time um, wanted to see, and and. You know, just generally making sure that the material looked good, it was in focus and so on and so forth. Um, it was a bit of a difficult one because obviously he was shooting out, out in Holland and the the rushes were coming back to us. For, uh, I was working in a lab at the time, so we were processing the film rushes and then getting them back out, um, giving uh, Mr. Verhoeven and everyone their feedback on it. But yeah, it was... It was a, it, it was a it was a really interesting time around the same sort of time I was working on things like um, Stephen Frears the Queen as well. So so we had quite a few really interesting projects coming through um, the lab that I was working in at the time, and you know it was, it was great fun to work on on these projects. So were you able to watch the rushes? 
Yeah, yeah, that's the whole point. Basically, I was pretty much the first eye on those rushes um, after they came out of the after they came out of the bath. So, really, part of my responsibility was to um, make sure the material didn't have say camera scratches on it, you know, the focus was right. If it, you know, if people were sort of wandering into shot that maybe hadn't been spotted by the, by the, by the ADs or anything like that. So, so all that kind of reporting stuff. So it's, it's like, um, you know, yeah, f- first few reporting really. Um, but w- w- which, which would have been back in, back in the day, it would have been something that, you know, the, the rushes would have been, um, printed up and screened for, um, for, for the, Producer, director, DOP, but you know those days seem to have gone, and and they'd certainly, you know, they certainly it certainly wasn't something that they they could do for for Black Book or anything like that. They kind of had to, um, you know, take take our our word until obviously they saw the sort the transferred rushes that everything was good or not, as the case may be. Uh, so, what were they transferred to at the time? It would have been uh, it was tape format. Still, we, we were just just on the verge of, of not transferring to data. So it would have been um, DigiBeta, I would have thought, initially. Oh, okay. Okay. And I mean, what, I mean, so having watched, like, um, the, the, the rushes uh, from that film, um, what, what, did, what were your thoughts of, you know, like, uh, what you saw? Well, I mean, it was, it, it, your Black Book is a, is a pretty... Um, is a pretty brutal work in places and you know it's kind of strange when you sort of wander in for a for a sort of normal morning's transfer and you're seeing um Carice van Helden being um basically abused by Nazis and things like that. That can that can put a little bit of a crimp in your day, I have to say. But um it was it was very clear it was a very personal vision for, for Verhoeven and um there was a lot of passion and and care in, in the work. Yeah, you, know, you could you could see just, just from the rushes that you that it was going to be something pretty special, so that's one I'm particularly proud of uh, having a credit on. Oh, cool! I mean, though, it must have been, yeah. That I mean, that you must have sort of seen that um, that scene. That uh, scene, seen? yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen the film, then you, I, I won't spoil it for you. But um, but you must have seen that scene from a lot of different angles. <laughs> I, I, I think they did have three different cameras on that particular scene. Yeah. Just to make sure they, they got all the coverage that they needed to. <laughs> uh, I, I, how did you feel after seeing that? Um, I felt like I needed to uh, have a shower basically. <laughs> <laughs> but even that, I mean, I know it, it, it's, it's, you know, an intense piece of work, but you still knew that there, there was a very good reason for it be, to be there. It, you know, it, it, there was never a sense of what was being shown being particularly exploitative. You know, you, you kind of you can kind of piece together the storytelling even at the brushes stage. So um, it, it was it was hard, but you knew why it was there. Let's put it like that. Yeah. What other films have you uh, worked on? Well, I mentioned uh, Stephen Frears' The Queen. Um, earlier on and that that was that again was was a really good one to work on that was we were pretty much involved from day one on that so uh you know chatting to Stephen Frears DOP and um getting the look making sure the material looked the way it should do that that was really good fun and um you know see the thing for me was watching um the way Helen Mirren would kind of change character in an instant. So, you know, you'd, you'd see her sort of getting, getting ready for, for, for the take 
And then it, as soon as the clapper went, she just, she changed like that. And, you know, being, she was a different person. And that was quite amazing. I don't think Helen Mirren quite gets the, uh, the kudos she maybe should do as an actress because she was absolutely amazing in The Queen. But just, just seeing the way she could turn literally on a dime like that was, was amazing, really. Well, I mean, I think people are sort of starting to... Well, I, well, I think she certainly is getting the kudos now. I mean, it, it, it was a long time coming, assuming that, you know, she'd worked from the 70s all the way quite consistently through the 80s, 90s, and then to the noughties, up to the point where she made the queen mm. and so you know i think she certainly has gotten her due and you know she's she's working a lot now but, oh abso- uh, absolutely i mean there, there's there's an element of her turning into a national treasure now where she can do <laughs> do no wrong but I, you know I've, I've always been a fan of of of, of, of her as an actress as, as as well as everything else so yeah you know, it's great to see her really st- still doing the do even now she's she's what she's mid 60s now something like that maybe yeah yeah something like that yeah. yeah but what was the what was the first film you saw her in uh oh crikey um yeah um excalibur she was amazing <laughs> at excalibur for all sorts of reasons yeah i i think excalibur was the first one i saw her in as well but um um i thought she was really good in the long good friday as well oh definitely yeah, I mean, you, you know, you look, you look at her filmography. And she's just done so much over the years, and, and you know, just all sorts of different roles as well. I mean, she, you know, she's one of our best character actors, I think. But it's really good to see her taking starring roles now. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, what other films have you worked on? Oh, blimey! Uh, there's, there's. <laughs> I tell you what else I've, I've worked on. I mean, apart from films, I've you know, obviously be, being a colorist means you do get to work on a lot of all sorts of different stuff and i was actually colorist for a couple of a couple of seasons of um last of the summer wine i don't know if you remember that show i do remember that show yeah. um, uh, oh what what period was that from that 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 was kind of late period for them so we're talk we're kind of talking i guess early 2000s maybe a little bit later than that but um so so you post um compo that that sort of period so you've got yeah. pe- um but still still uh was it shot in film still no tell, no they, 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 they moved on to video at that point i think i always thought it was a combination of two because i think the outside i don't if i i guess i don't know if this is correct or not but i remember the bbc used to shoot film for outside and then in the studio, it was video. Yeah, or, th- yeah, th- yeah. Th- that was always the case when um, when uh, production video cameras were just too heavy to really get outside for anything other than a kind of specialist outside broadcast kind of thing. Yeah, um, I-, I think that I think that was the case. I, I do remember sort of very much for the 80s and 90s that there was a there was a different look to the outside and the interiors. I mean, the interiors were definitely. Uh, for the most part, uh, studio. While mm, yeah, I think and though saying that, I think probably about the time you were working on it, it, it may have changed. That it may have all gone location. Uh, no, actually, it did no, no. Um, at the time I was there because I actually went to Pinewood to to have a look at the interiors that they were shooting. Oh, okay, so, so they basically had pretty much all the interiors there. So they had um, uh, 
the the yeah the cafe and the the uh, the inside of uh, the library and things like that. And that, that so they basically had a, a nested set of internal sets. So yeah, all the interiors were shot pretty much at at, um, at Pinewood, and then exteriors obviously out in the wilds of Yorkshire. Oh. Uh, so the fun challenge for that program was obviously it's called Last of the Summer Wine. So the whole trick was to make it look bright and summery and warm which you know when they're shooting in yorkshire in uh, you know up in the dales in march yeah. trust me sometimes it's very very difficult to get that warm look <laughs> so so that was a, that was always a fun challenge and um obviously had the um the, the main guy um I can't remember his name off the top of my head now. Alan J W Bell, who, who was right. kind of kind of the, the you know the prime creative mover behind Last of the Summer Wine. You know, always written by Ray Clark, Roy Clark, but he produced and uh, Alan Bell wrote and produced it. So he was always in kind of you know keeping our, an eye on what I was doing and just trying to make sure it did have that kind of warm summery look, which admittedly was a little bit forced in places, but you know, you do what you can with what you, what you're given. And, you know, if it's chucking it down with rain, um, you know, making things look bright and sunshiny can be a little bit tricky. <laughs> well, I imagine. Yeah. Especially, uh, all that rain starting to appear on screen. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, the two seasons of that, that was, that was really good fun. Um, so it's been a, a very, very broad spread of stuff that I've worked on. I mean, yeah. obviously you're you're kind of con- concerned about the movie side of it, but an awful lot of TV um, I've done as well. You know, everything from sort of early reality show stuff through to um, documentaries, uh, bits and bobs like that. So, uh, which which is the way it should be, really. And any colour is yeah. worth their salt. Should be working on a broad range of stuff. So you know they. they so you, you have a, a good set of tools, creative tools to be able to, to bring anything you like to 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 the particular task that you're given to do or that you, you, you choose to do. Yeah, I mean, we I mean, yes, primarily we we sort of talk about films, but uh, we also talk about uh, TV where we can and stuff. And, sure. you know, I think I think what you say is it just sort of goes across the board because um like as a director you know i've i've done films i've done tv i've done music videos i've done corporates i've done commercials you know i've done a whole range of stuff and it's um you kind of have to just so you know so that you can try different things out and you can learn different things so when you do come to doing like a, a big project you can bring all that stuff with you yeah absolutely I don't know if you want to talk about it, actually what it is to be a colorist and what a colorist can bring to a project no, let's let's talk about it. Let's, so, let's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Just because my, my memory is fading, and you know, I could go through a big list of films and things I've worked on, but but let's actually talk about you know the okay. uh, the the art and craft because I mean, you do a certain amount of that yourself, don't you? Now, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just a bit, uh, just a bit. But um, okay, well, when you um, when you first started being a grader, what was the kind of the equipment you were using and? You know, how's it changed throughout the years? Okay, well, um, when I started, obviously, the, the notion of being a colorist was was kind of wasn't really there. I mean, it was just starting to, to, to sort of peek its head around. But but the, the idea was that you were a telecine operator. So you basically had 
filmed that you kind of balanced and optimized electronically and then electronically put it onto tape. Um, so obviously that's changed massively over the years. Um, film you don't see so much of other than at the really high end, you know, you know, things like your, your um, Batman v Superman's, your, your Star Wars, your Bonds, things like that are still shot on film. But the vast majority of material that comes comes into a colorist suite now is obviously data, which you then manipulate and then you push back out as data. So that workflow has obviously changed things massively. You're expected to do an awful lot more in terms of logging the data that you get, um, applying lookup tables and things like that, which is, yeah, that's what your magic bullets and things like that are. They're effectively just lookup tables that take a set of data, apply another set of values to them, and at the end you get something with a different look. I, I think uh, a lot of people uh, think that, like, lookup tables are kind of like these, like, programs and stuff, but really, if, if you if you look at them, they're actually just, like, a, a text file that says, do this, do this, do this, and do this. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we, so, I mean, they, they can have value in terms of sort of taking the, the, the raw data that comes out of the back of a camera, which which often, you know, if you look at the, a, a raw file, it's it's not it's not a good look really is it it's it's although interestingly enough there was a bit of a trend not that long ago for for stuff to actually look as if as if it had basically just come out of the back of a camera it, it, there was no blacks in it it was really milky um no contrast no color but you know because people were seeing you know people were editing with those files they kind of got used to them and then decided i know that's a look we're going with that which, yeah, yeah, it's it, you, you saw it a lot in advertising, the whole sort of uh, bleached out look. Yeah, so it was very bright. Everything was very white. And yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it certainly was a look. And, um, you know, just but it's one of those looks that it just was being used for everything. And I think got tiresome very quickly. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a trend. And, now, um, and it didn't last very long just because, frankly, the pictures weren't that attractive, really. But mm. there you go. Um, <laughs> I think what's, what's changed a lot over the years is the ability to do so much more with with so much less, really. You know, um, I've always been a, a, an advocate of the kind of less is more school of, 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 of color grading, where basically you're doing a lot with just you, just your primary color correction and a little bit of secondary. Um, what I'm not doing is the kind of advertising school where you basically just take, take an image and effectively break it down into its component parts and then grade each of those. So you could have a background that you grade separately to say the face of the person that's, 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 that's in that shot separately to say what's on the table um, separately to everything else. So you end up with, 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 with effectively like, like a 20 layer Photoshop thing with, with layers moving around tracking and, and, and things like that. And although that's, yeah, that's, that's fine for certain things, you know, it's, it's fine for, for sort of advertising and things like that. It gets, very tiresome very quickly when you're having to grade an awful lot of material so so yeah you know, in the in the rushes world in in the drama world where you need to crank through stuff clients expect you to be working very very quickly on stuff and you honestly don't have time to be to be you know 
nuancing and tweaking every tiny, tiny little bit. So, I, I, yeah, I, I grew up not having those tools. So yeah. I, I can use them, and I do use them when I need to use them. But my mindset is always okay. Let's get let's get balance correct first. Yeah, let's get our blacks looking good. Let's get our highlights looking good. Let's make sure the mid ranges are, are clean and nice. And then from there, then we can start applying a look if you need one. Then if you feel that you know this person's face is underexposed, then we can lift that and so on and so forth. But you do find that. 90 to 95 percent of the of, of of the workload on on any given piece is actually perfectly achievable just using your base controls that that's that's philosophy i've always applied and it, you know it's it's stood me in good stead really I, you know there is a place for secondary grades and you know windows and things like that but personally i i believe that it's it's always worth getting you getting the basic grade layer right before you do anything else and you do see a lot of colorists that just don't do that they go straight in and start lift, you know putting windows on stuff and, and lifting stuff that they don't necessarily need to do certainly not at the initial stage yeah i mean um when you're grading um do you do it by eye or are you just always constantly looking at the scopes there has to be a bit of both really um Setting an initial grade, it's it's very useful having scopes, but I think you have to trust your eyes as well. Obviously, that yeah, a lot of that comes down to the correct calibration of of your monitoring. You know, making sure that 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 you haven't got a you haven't got a blue hue on your on your monitor or anything like that. But no, I th- you know people will hire a colorist to have an eye to 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 to, to be able to see things in in a different way to the way they're looking or to key into. Uh, a director's vision or a DOP's vision. So, yeah, using scopes is is vitally important. And again, I think that's something that a lot of um, new colorists maybe don't use enough is to make sure that you know when when they when they start grading, they don't instantly crush the blacks down. So there's no detail. So there's nowhere to go with those blacks. But no, our, the eye is everything. Really, mm. you you have to trust what your eye is telling you, what your instincts are telling you when it comes to, to grading any given scene or item. Uh, for those who don't know, what do you mean by crushing the blacks? Crushing the blacks is, I'm kind of waving my hands about here, which which is something that colorists always do. Um, we are very tactile creatures, basically, because of the, you know, the essential elements of the tools we use are, it's not sort of mouse and tablet, it's, it's, um, it's basically what's the best way of putting it i, I, I want to say balls and rings <laughs> well yeah no that's the to, best way to, to put it. i mean the, the control surface is the control surface. balls with 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 a ring around it isn't it yeah so so the ring yeah. basically controls the amount of of level of a, of a given bit of a of a of a video signal let's call it a video signal for, for want of a better word but basically crushing the blacks would be taking the the low lights of a, of a signal and basically taking them down past a zero volt level, which means basically you can't see it anymore. So cr- crushing the blacks works in a dramatic sense in that, you know, you end up with, with a very contrasty scene. But it does mean that if you want to get detail back in, it's actually very, very difficult to do. So you're always better off rather than, than taking your blacks down past the zero volt level, actually just sitting them slightly above which again is, is is why it's absolutely vital to have 
um, scope knowledge and understanding why why things look the way they do. You, it's very easy to see on a scope something that is crushed, and then hopefully you can do something about it. But if you if your base material is crushed, then you're stuffed. Basically, all, all, all you all you do is, is be lifting a flat line as opposed to something that's got detail in it. Yeah, I mean, do you get footage now or, or then that's sort of um, what we call flat, which is it, it looks everything looks grey. Mm. Um, well, is well, it or, or or is it like sometimes you're having to rescue it because they they have crushed the blacks when they've been shooting? Yeah, um, I always think there's two strands to a colorist's job. Um, You've got the creative side of it, which everyone likes to talk about, you know, the way you can you can take an image and give it this gorgeous look. But half, half to two thirds of what you will do on any given day, um, particularly if you're working in reality stuff or news footage, is rescue. It, it's about matching and it's about actually trying to trying to make make an image look part way decent and. Particularly with, with 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 say documentary stuff, it will be shot these days on so many different kinds of cameras. You know, you'll get phone footage in there. You'll get stuff from DSLRs. You you'll get proper cameras in there, and your job is to match all that up. You know, you don't know what the white balance has been like if there's been a white balance done on these cameras. Uh, so so you need to get them to a point where the material at least looks like it was shot in one place at one time, which which frequently again isn't the case as well. So it is about getting getting the balance right. You know, I use the word balance an awful lot when I'm talking about the colorist's trade, because it is about um, supplying a signal that, that does look clean and balanced. So you've got white whites, you've got black blacks, um, Obviously, you know, it, 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 if the client wants 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 to uh, wants a tweak to that, if he if he wants things to look a little bit blue, um, if he's going for a moody kind of crime drama look, or if he wants things to look a bit brown because you know they're going for a, a an old timey sort of a look, then yeah, absolutely, you can do that. But again, you know, nine times out of ten, what people want is clean, bright, sharp images. So. That's that's the job, really, and sometimes that dif- that's difficult when when you see what you get in the door at the you know, at, at the beginning of the session. Well, I I think I put my question better actually is: Do you okay. prefer that the image be flat, or do you prefer that that they have it, that there's some sort of contrast to it, or some sort of colour done to it already? Well, um, I I prefer really that it comes out of the camera clean. Um, I mean, obviously. Um, raw footage you can apply a lot to it which will kind of take the very thin signal and and bring it back to some sort of easily workable thing but but no, as as long as there's signal there that can be worked with without completely overloading the range of the of the of the of the of the, of the software that you're working with then it doesn't really matter you know if you if you're dealing with with say red raw or or, or sort of arry raw stuff, you know it's going to come in looking a certain way. You know it's going to be a flat signal. But the first thing you do would be to apply a lot to that. It'll instantly take take a lot of the green out. It'll it'll bring the blacks down a bit. It'll bring the whites up a bit. It'll give you a little bit of contrast, and then from there you can start giving giving the material the look that it needs, or at the very least, you know 
make your whites white, make your make your blacks black, so on and so forth. Yeah. All right. I just asked because um, a lot of these sort of uh, cameras coming out now, especially on the digital SLR range, mm. they are coming with um, these sort of very flat profiles, and yeah. uh, they they are pushing towards that. And I know I've used used it a couple of times now, and the thing I always find is that, um, uh, especially in editing, it's really hard because a lot of the time you're not quite sure if it's in focus or not. Mm. I mean, that was that was the one of the things that I found shooting with having one of these sort of very flat profiles was it was really hard to tell if the damn thing was in focus. Or <laughs> really? Not. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it was because there's because it's all flat. It's all color wise. Mm. It's just flat. And and it is amazing then when you do take it into the sort of to be graded or put a, a a a lot on there that it suddenly it does come to life. But it's just. It's just one of these weird things where it's kind of like you you kind of would like to to see what it looks like without it just being completely flat. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that's always confused me a little bit about about raw footage, which is you know, it's captured all the detail, but why is it captured in a, in a way that is quite so unpleasant to the human eye? Why is it that you have to sort of load up something else to actually get it looking normal in the first place we should you know i i, well, I, I think it's the fact is then that you're not locked locked into one look that you can change it whichever way you want to mm. you can change the color temperature you can you know you can change um I don't know. It's, it's just you can you can change it a lot more than if it's sort of in if the look is kind of cooked in yeah, but yeah, you know, to, to a certain extent, you, you know, you you can do that with 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 an image that's that's looking reasonable rather than it looking so, just so incredibly flat. I, I do t I do take what you're saying, but I, I don't know. I, I always started off with with images that looked fairly decent from from frame one, and then from there, you can still take them and pull them around any way you want. But you know, hey, what do I know? I'm 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 a pretty old school guy here, Simon. You know, I, I don't understand a lot of this modern stuff. <laughs> well, do you feel that um, the the look of the films now and TV is becoming more of the colorist's job and less the DOPs? Oh no, I, I I think DOPs always want to put a certain they they want to put their their stamp on stuff. And I think really that that what happens is that they work in conjunction with colorists that they trust to deliver that vision. It was certainly um, a period, probably in the in the nineteen nineties into the early two thousands, where colorists had a particular look, and if you wanted a particular look, you went to that colorist, and that colorist gave you that look. And there's a lot of colorists out there that did make fame and fortune out of out basically bringing the same thing time and time and time again. Um, what's happening now is that with digital formats being able to, to sort of feedback stuff so easily to the creatives on the set and, and, and whatever, um, the, the guys, in, the directors and the DOPs do, do are able to, to kind of set a look a lot more quickly and, and kind of make sure that the colorist is actually delivering that particular look. You're getting a lot more feedback a lot more quickly. So 
the colorist is vitally important in in this whole chain even more so i think than than they've ever been because obviously you know you, you you're getting flat stuff in that needs something doing to it and and, and frankly a lot just doesn't really cut it half the time you know you you need someone to be able to sort of tweak stuff and lift stuff because as you were saying earlier a lot is basically just a set of instructions and that set of instructions doesn't really care if it's going to crush blacks or blow out whites it will just do what it does so it's down to the colorist to be able to sort of say actually you know we can we can circumvent this and do that instead so so you know the colorist role is is still vitally vitally important but he's kind of not he or she isn't the be all and end all of of the the final given look of 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 any particular piece the best looking stuff is always delivered where the colorist and the dop and the director are all talking together and agreeing together and and giving a, a particular look the worst is obviously when you get a colorist uh, or a dop or a director that doesn't agree with with the other two parts in that chain so that that, that that's just the yeah. way it goes unfortunately <laughs> sometimes which and then you just end up with with with, with, a, with something that does look like a bit of a dog's breakfast but yeah, yeah. Mm. yes color colorists are important but not as important as they maybe were is 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 the short answer so um i mean earlier you sort of um said about how um i grade now as well and mm. um I, I grade because um because you kind of you, you you taught me you sort of um you showed me the sort of the basics um, yes my young padawan because... <laughs> 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 what happened was that um on on blood and roses um i asked you to sort of come on board as as a colorist because you had done uh my previous short monologue triptych that's right and you were quite happy to sort of um show me the ropes and sort of set up a few basic looks for for the film hmm. and then just let me go you know and let me do the sort of the bulk of it and then you'd come back and just you know adjust slightly if that was the case yeah so, so and, in some, uh, that, that that way of doing things is is what's called being a supervising colorist which a lot of the really big names have yeah. now moved on to where they will kind of set a look and then sort of put a, put a you know either a junior or or, or or a staff actually onto making sure that everything matches up and then maybe tweak it a little bit at the end but um that just seemed to make more sense because it meant you could as opposed to me sort of coming in and doing a session, it meant you could actually wander off and, and do your own thing to a certain extent, but, you know, tweak to your heart's content. And then I come in at the end and go, right, yeah, that's a bit, that, that, that one shot, you can maybe just do that with. And it, it yeah. I, I personally, I think it worked very well. You know, Blood and Roses is a good looking piece of work. If I do say so myself. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you certainly got the credit for it. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I, I certainly need to sort of <laughs> I think I should add myself now as junior colorist. Junior colorist, yeah. Well as long as I, I, I get changed to supervising colorist, that's fine. <laughs> uh, but no, it's sort of um how I was able to do that was um um at the time um Apple had released uh colour. Mm. Uh through their final cut suite and uh and that was sort of the the first time that I can remember that um, grading software was out there available to the public to use. And of course it's now grown 
with uh, DaVinci Resolve. Now, we've got, you can get a free copy of Resolve, and uh, Resolve is actually very, very good at... Um, Oh, at grading. I mean, very. I mean, I use it all the time now. I, I'm when I ma- can. But well, I'm a massive fan of Resolve, and I'm not the only one. Um, certainly in the in the, the in the DI world, in the sort of film grading world, Resolve is pretty much where it's at now. Most people, most big colorists, will use Resolve because it's it is incredibly powerful and um, very very straightforward and easy to use i think that's the that's the main thing that you can work very very quickly and you can set up looks very very quickly with it but it is astonishing that what they give away for free on there um mm. i mean really the only difference between the the free version and the the, the studio version well there's, there's a couple um there's no stereoscopic stuff there and there's no um no real collaborative kind of input so you can't have the sort of remote grading stuff or, or or work as as a colorist team but apart from that it's astonishingly powerful and obviously the um, resolve 12 is out now which which again has added even more tweaks to the mix you know it's got um audio tools that are quite handy and things like that so resolve do seem to be trying to push themselves as a as a one one one-stop shop for um for low-cost production yeah, I mean they're not there yet. I mean they're definitely not there yet. I mean it's. I mean the editing is not quite there. Um, mm. I still edit in Premiere. Okay. And um, yeah, and also I've had loads of audio problems with you know, and I so I can't output the whole video from Resolve. I have to bring it back into Premiere to to output it. So it it it, it it'll get there. It will mm. certainly get there. I mean when you look back at Final Cut, the first two versions of it were terrible. Yeah. But yet, then free came along, and it just changed everything. And I remember, I went, I learned on Premiere as an editor, mm. and then I moved to Final Cut Pro free. And I was with Final Cut Pro all the way to seven, and then of course ten came out, and that was when I moved back to Premiere. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm you know I'm a big fan of um, of Final Cut Pro ten, but you know a lot obviously uh, it, it's a very divisive piece of software. So so you know. Your, your, your mileage may vary, but I think most people do agree that, that that Resolve is is a very powerful piece of kit that is improving all the time. So, yeah, and and it, it pops up all over the place in 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 very very professional um, environments. So, you know, if if you want to get yourself involved in uh, in, in color grading, um, your best bet is to grab yourself a free copy of Resolve and uh, start playing around. Really, yeah, it's, it's 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 the best way of learning. It's just sort of doing it. Oh, of course, and then then you can also spend loads of money doing a course. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should set myself oh, no, up as I mean, a trainer I... or something. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's. I think uh, if you can get on a course do it because um there's a lot there it it can be a bit overwhelming when you first sit down to do it and um it's just sort of knowing what each thing does and especially working with uh scopes and stuff because mm-hmm. i think with the definitely with the scopes they it's a, a very sort of good basis to start from trying to sort of just get the colors sort of in between the top and the bottom yeah but, but just just understanding i mean we're talking about crushing the blacks earlier on just just understanding you know what what a, a, a black crushed picture looks like as opposed to one that's got a nice level of contrast but there's still detail in the blacks that's very very easy to do in resolve and uh 
you know, it, it gives you a really good basis to go from. The one thing really that does make an incredible difference in any kind of professional grading environment is is the control surface, of course, and that's the thing that can mm. cost an awful lot of money. I mean, Resolve do offer their own control surface, which is this lovely big sort of desk with all the bells and whistles, but they're asking 21 grand for that. Whereas you've got country, uh, countries, companies like um, um, RL Cooper and Tangent particularly who offer low-cost grading services that do pretty much everything that you need to do, but it means you're not constantly poking around with a mouse or a tablet to actually get what you need. And it means you can multitask as well. You can do do simple things at once, like say you can take your blacks down while bringing your whites up at once. You know, it's 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 a it's a single process as opposed to dragging and dropping and and sort of move, moving sliders about. And that's what really speeds you up as a colorist. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's um, I, I have not had a chance to work with a, a control surface, so but I, I imagine it's a lot a lot quicker. Yeah, but uh, I have to say it's gotten easier using the um, the mouse and keyboard to to get stuff done because I remember color at first you tended to just to be trying to drag things along and it would take you know it felt like you were doing a mammoth task dragging your mouse from one side of the table to the other. Just to move this is it so quickly. heavy. Why uh, is this so uh, heavy? Um, <laughs> but yeah. I'm, well, personally, I, I think once 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 you try things with a control surface, you don't go back. And um, Tangent are releasing uh, the thing a thing called the Ripple, which is brand new this year. I think they're 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 going to be showing it at the NAB, and that's kind of a cut down version of a control surface. But it's got it's got your your balls and rings, and it's got a few programmable soft keys. But that, they're they're pushing that out for two hundred and fifty quid, which I think makes oh, that. Okay. Which make, makes the whole process a lot more affordable, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're looking at sort of a grand or so for for, for something like a, a wave panel or a, a, um, the Avid Artist Control that that sort of stuff, which is still, you know, it's still doable. But you know, if you can get get a lot of the same functionality for 250 quid, I'd say, yeah, absolutely, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it's amazing how much equipment has come down in price now. Well, yeah, exactly. Have you, um, yeah, have you noticed there's been more graders coming along now, or is it sort of still the same level as it used to be? Well, you certainly see a lot of different names appearing now. Yeah, it always used to be the case where where a colorist would only really be credited um, if they were names of a particular kind of. Uh, distinction you know pedigree um you know the big names like people like Gian omashibi or um aiden farrell and things like that but because so much more stuff is coming through that needs a colorist's touch then yeah you do see um a lot of guys coming through you know there, there are more suites being built because there's a need for it frankly you know the, the material does need a little bit of a touch and stuff gets graded that you you wouldn't think yeah, when I'm talking about reality shows, I'm not just talking, um, say, your nice documentaries or anything like that. A lot of cookery shows, they're all graded. There's a colourist on mm. those. So anything that's kind of multiple cameras, um, anything that that, that you know, might have, say, uh, DSLR footage or phone footage and stuff like that, you, you tend to find that they will have a colourist 
supervising that look. Uh, you know, a, a same look, it might just be making sure it's not bright green throughout, for example. So, yeah, 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 more, there, there, there are more colorists than ever before, and, and, and God damn it, the world is so much better for it. <laughs> uh, I wish that was true of the crew side because it's just it's I don't know but I, I've been finding it very difficult to get work lately <laughs> really oh, no. <laughs> yeah that's not good yeah yeah so, well this is the this is what I find with every sort of leap with technology that more and more people come and do it and it just means that there is there's there's only a certain amount of jobs out there yeah, and, but there's more people yeah. trying to get them. So yeah, definitely. From a, a camera point of view, it's a bit of an arms race out there at the moment because you have to, you usually have to own a camera, right, to get work, right, right. And so you have to pick the right camera because okay. there's so many of them. But you're yeah. not quite sure what camera clients want. I've owned sort of two Panasonic GH uh, GHs. I've had the two and the four. Yeah. With the two, I got a lot of work. With the four, I've had no work. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you think, oh, 4K and all this. But um, a, a lot of the companies, a lot of clients, like the C300. Uh, oh, really? Okay, fine. And I guess you've got the Blackmagic compact camera now as well and things like that. So that, that Yeah. Yeah, but I think, but I mean, for as a jobbing camera, the C300 is is at the moment is the one to get i mean i invested in a, a sony z1 back at the beginning of the 2000s mm. and i got a lot of work through that but that was a three and a half grand camera yeah <laughs> a big know? lump as well it's not it's, it's not something you can kind of sling in a backpack or anything like that is it yeah but i mean for for a digital slr to function as a a, a video camera or film camera you, you have to buy so much equipment to to make it functional oh, i mean right. My my camera at the moment, I couldn't with everything on it. You just couldn't throw into the back of a, a backpack. You have to have like a, a proper case, like I had with my Z, my Z one. Yeah, I mean, but I, I was wondering if it's been their case with um, in the grading world as well, because we've seen like Da Vinci become free, and we're now seeing like control surfaces getting cheaper. Mm. You know, are you experience the same thing where there's now more people than ever doing, you know, working in that field? Mm. Um, yes, you you are. The the trick really um, with a job in colorist these days is to be platform agnostic. I guess you know, um, the job is the job. Grading is grading, but you know, within that, you've got you've got your your um, your resolves. You've got your film lights. You've got um, also, also there, there's, there are loads of different software um, platforms out there that basically do the same thing. So it's 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 definitely worth your while getting training on all of these just to understand the differences between the way a new coder will deal with a particular piece of footage, um, input and output and so on, as opposed to uh, the way Filmlight will deal with it, as opposed to the way that Resolve will deal with it. I mean, Filmlight have got a new version of... Um, their software coming out again for NAB um, 5.0 and that apparently is getting up that they're, they're, they're apparently doing away with the whole process the, the whole notion of lift gamma and gain and they're changing it to something like oh, I, I can't even remember what it is but basically what they're saying is 
this is a whole new way of working. And I'm not convinced, really. I, I, I think the process remains the same throughout. And as long as you've got the basic tools to hand, it's really just a case of navigating your way around a different piece of software. And, and that can come quite quickly. You know, I, I think if you know Resolve, you'll get, you'll get to grips with new coder and uh, film light, or if you know film light, you'll get to grips with new coder and resolve comparatively quickly, but you do need to know how to do them because obviously a if you're sitting with a client, the client doesn't want to see you fumbling around and sort of going, Oh, you know, where's the play button? They, they, they want you to be like, bam, okay, we can do this. We can do that. You yeah. know, if you do need to hunt around to find some of the keying stuff, then that's fine. But I think, being able to sit down confidently and at least start to work without fumbling too much is, is really key to, to, to success um, as a colorist. And, you know, whatever room you sit down in, you should be able to, to do that. So that's the trick, really. It, 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 you know, um, I think any colorist that just says, oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm a Resolve colorist isn't going to get that much work because obviously you know, they'll only be able to work in a Resolve suite. Whereas if you say, I'm a colorist, you can walk into a Resolve mm. suite or a new coder suite or a film light suite or anything else that's out there. And, you know, you've been, you, you basically just, just expanded your remit that much. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it, it's the same with cameras. If you've, if you've used like digital SLRs or, you know, you, you, you need to sort of know how to use a red camera or an ARRI camera yeah. or uh, a C300 or whatever other cameras there are out there. Uh, so that you, because some of the jobs, yes, you need to bring a camera with you, but some of the other jobs, the production of providing the camera and they, you need to, you need to know what you're doing and you need to sort of jump in there. So yeah, exactly. The but, but more but, cameras you can work with. Yeah. But the same, the process remains the same. Basically, as long as you know, how to set a focus, how to set aperture, how to how to sort of light a scene, mm. then that that's ninety percent of what a client is hiring you for. It's not yeah. it's they're not hiring you because you know all all the different menu layers on the C three hundred. It's that you can deliver nice looking <laughs> pictures. And that's that and that's what people hire a colorist <laughs> for. They're not impressed with the fact that you can sort of yeah. you can you can sort of rattle through and you've got custom looks for for for, for your new coder or whatever. It, it's that you deliver a the picture that they want at the end of the day. And that's, that's, that's what it comes down to really. Oh yeah. But I mean, you need to, um, with anything, it's all about, about time. So if you're fumbling around trying to find where the ISO is and stuff like that, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't look good. No, so no. you sort of, you need to sort of know it from that point of view. I mean, you just, you just sort of need to know where, you know, kind of like, where's the, you know, where's the record button. So you can just, you know, instinctively where to, to press record. Yeah. I mean, what, yeah, majority so... of them do have them in similar places. I mean, I'm just talking about canvas. I mean, you, you tend to find that, uh, you know, that certain things are in the same places, but then you'll, you'll come up against that one camera where it's slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. On, on some control surfaces, it's actually quite difficult to find the play button, weirdly enough. Um, <laughs> da Vinci's early uh, early panels were were, were quite strange because you had kind of that there were two, back in the old back in the old school now yeah there, there were two different there were two platforms there was your Pogol and your Da Vinci and Pogol was always the more straightforward one and is laid out in a much more intuitive fashion but a lot of stuff that was there was kind of tucked away in menus whereas Da Vinci much bigger panel and everything was on the panel 
which meant that finding the play button was actually quite difficult. And it didn't help that as opposed to the play button being sort of marked off with a little triangle, it was literally just, you know, the play button had play written on it. So you're basically confronted with like an aircraft carrier's worth of controls there, all in text. So, you know, it, it, it wasn't actually that easy to find stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, so what are you currently working on? Uh, currently, I'm, I've, I've kind of, over the past few years, I've kind of settled into more of a sort of archive role. So um, embracing the fact that there's 100 years worth of film out there that also needs to be exploited is the wrong word, it, it, it kind of shared, with, shared with the general public. So I've, um, I've been working with, with a lot of the big sort of film libraries that obviously have warehouses full of old 16mm, old 35mm, and um, basically getting them into a position where they can be shared with with the with the general public through things like yeah like YouTube or say for the BBC the BBC Archive uh, BFI as well BFI player that sort of stuff so it's about kind of archive restoration and archive distribution really and and you know that that's that's a fun challenge to sort of play around with that. I mean, I do get the odd, odd other, you know, the other odds and sods come through as well, but for the most part, I'm kind of back to where I started. If you like, I'm, I'm on a daily basis. I'm handling film, which makes me very, very unusual in, in, in the colorist world these days. A lot of colorists really wouldn't know how to have, you know, wouldn't actually know what to do with a roll of 35 mil. So I'm quite unusual in that aspect these days. But yeah, I enjoy it. It's it's you know it's it's challenging to get the best out of material that's obviously been sat in a can for possibly fifty, sixty years. But the the joy of it is when you get something up that's that you know hasn't been seen, has got real significant cultural or artistic value, and looks amazing right out the bat. I'll give you an example of that. Just before Christmas, um, yeah, we had a guy come in with uh, basically a carrier bag with some film in it. And it was some stuff that he'd found in his garage that had been kicking around. And it was very, very early um, animation, 16mm animation, of a character called Oswald the Rabbit. Now, Oswald the Rabbit is the precursor of Mickey Mouse. And this was something that but basically he got, in, got hold of Disney, um, who obviously owned the copyright to Oswald the Rabbit, and said... I've got this stuff. What do you want to do with it? And Disney basically paid for a whole 4K scan and restoration of this Oswald the Rabbit stuff that he had, which was screened um, at at the um, at the NFT over Christmas. Oh and wow! That's that's the joy of this kind of material. Really, it's it's finding the hidden gems. It's finding the the, the weird little odds and sods that you, you you wouldn't expect to see, and. Yeah, that's the fun of it, really. Just being able to have the skills to be able to get this stuff in in a position where people can enjoy it again, you know, rather than it being stuck in a warehouse, in someone's garage, in a plastic bag somewhere, getting it onto YouTube, getting it onto the iPlayer and, and having people, you know, showing it to people and saying, look, look, isn't this great? Isn't this fantastic? The fact that this was shot... 60, 70, 80 years ago, and we can still enjoy it now. And that's that's the fun of what I do these days. Oh, oh brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> but, I mean, that's not the only thing you do at the moment. I mean, uh, I just sort of want to quickly touch on the um, – because you do a lot of podcasts. 
Uh, yes, we do. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's the if, if 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 you probably if you're listening and you're wondering, I've heard that voice on here before. How have I heard this voice before? Uh, well, because Rob uh, with Clive do the uh, A to Z of SFF, and of course that advert is always played um, in our main episodes. Very nice so, to hear that as well. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yes. Thank you for for doing the plug for me, pretty much. But yeah, the A to Z of SFF is um, basically myself and Clive Ashenden's um, attempt to take the whole great fat universe of science fiction and fantasy and kind of put some sort of order to it. So <laughs> we've we've uh, we're, we're we're in a reboot mode at the moment. We've we've done one season of it, which was basically A is four. Um, which kind of worked, but, 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 you know, we want to retool things and bring, um, and, and liven things up a bit for 2016. So we're just in the final stages of, uh, of, um, tweaking a reboot. I've got, um, Berea Thomas, who, who does our front and end credits. She's doing a record for us on Sunday. Um, okay. I've already done, um, new front and end titles music wise as well. I've composed some music for that. Um, and yeah, hopefully um, we should have the A to Z back up and running in the next fortnight, the very late, uh, the very latest I would have said. And um, yeah, um, what's old is new again. I mean, it was, it was thanks to you guys that sort of um, piques my interest in, in sort of doing a podcast. And mm. so what, what was it that made you want to go out and do uh you know to make podcasts because you you've done this one and you did the speakeasy beforehand um clive was always the main motive for that um he, he, he he's he's a big podcast fan and then he was quite keen to do it but because you know we've we've done an awful lot of stuff creatively together um from sort of film work writing work and things like that it seemed like a natural fit to give it a go so yeah, I mean, we 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 did the speakeasy for what eighteen months, I suppose, and then moved on to the A to Z of SFF. Yeah, but it's it's it, I think I think it works because the uh, it, it's about the relationship between the two of us. I mean, it's the same with 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 you and Keith doing doing movie heaven, movie hell. You know, part of the fun of it is that the two of you do mesh together quite nicely. Yeah. And also, to be honest with you, podcasting is a hell of a lot easier than making a film. So, yeah, <laughs> there's always that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it certainly is. I mean, um, I mean, the thing, because, you know, it takes us, say, you know, we, we, we record this for over an hour mm. and then you just sort of, you, if you want, you could, I could literally just put this up straight away and da-da, it's there. Uh, though I do, I do edit these, you know, just to take certain things out you no, know that's especially that's, like background noise that's things like that, that but that's fair enough but yeah with a film you kind of have you have to write the scripts you have to get everybody together you have to then you know you'd probably spend days shooting it and then months editing it and you know post-production doing sound music and stuff and then and, and then you go there you go <laughs> you know months later yeah and there's the whole distribution thing of it as well whereas yeah. with a podcast you can be very very fast moving you can get stuff up within a within a couple of hours of it being recorded and that just goes everywhere you know you can stick it on itunes and there you go folks there's our latest podcast so yeah um 
I do enjoy it. You know, the, the process can get a little bit wearing sometimes, but you know, when you're in the yeah, mood for I, it, it's 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 good fun, isn't it? Well, I mean, uh, one of the reasons why we we started this podcast, uh, me and Keith, was the fact that um, we had planned to do a, a very long episode on uh, the speakeasy about uh, Michael Manfields. Mm. And, and of course, uh, you guys decided to um, to stop doing the speakeasy. And I just um, wondered what the reasons were for that decision. Uh, well, um, it, it kind of got to a point with the speakeasy where it was turning into a huge thing. You know, uh, we, we'd done an episode on Blake 7 that I think was a three-hour record that we had to break into two parts. And it was just getting to the point for me personally, because I was the guy that was basically taking everything, doing all the editing, sticking music on and so on and so forth. It was just getting to be an awful lot of work for, for, for what it was. And I, I, I kind of just wanted to change things up as well. I think, you know, doing stuff for more than 18 months on a, on a podcast is, is all well and good, but I think it's always worth freshening up the mix and trying something new so so there, there, there was a couple of different elements there really it was, it was kind of a, a case of okay we've we've sort of done this let's try something else i know you guys were very very disappointed about not doing the michael <laughs> yeah. man but ultimately <laughs> ultimately what's come out of the back of it is a very good new podcast so Really, you should be thanking me for for closing. You're welcome. All I can, all I can say is I'm glad to be an inspiration. <laughs> But I mean, the great uh, thing about podcasting is uh, when me and Clive first started the Speakeasy, God, whenever that that must be what two and a half, three years ago now, we were very, very nervous on the mic, and that that really shows. You can still listen to the Speakeasy now; it's, it's still out there. You know, I, I still paid a little bit of hosting for it, and it still actually gets listens. Weirdly enough, I sort of go back and sort of think, well, maybe I could, you know save myself five quid a month and just like close down the Libsyn account for it. Uh, no, you know, there's twenty, thirty, forty listens a week sometimes of of, of like eighteen month old podcasts. It's like, ah, okay, well, fine, fair enough. But it, the more you podcast, the better you get. You know, it's the same with, same with anything. You know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I really like actually just being able to, to chat, or, or, you know, through a mic to people now, which is something that if, uh, as a classic introvert, I think it, it kind of works for me because I don't have to sort of be on with people, even though I can be on with people because there's that little sort of a, there's that little buffer zone on there. Um, I've, 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 I've painted myself into a corner there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just rescue you. Right. <laughs> get you out of the corner quick. But uh, no, no, I, I, I know what you mean. It's sort of, it, it's been very good um, exercise sort of, you know, just especially uh, when you talk to people. Um, Cause we, now we've had like, uh, you know, about four interviews with people who, you know, I sort of consider to be more into the film industry. Mm. And when we did, did our Kenneth Johnston uh, interview, I have to say I was 
nervous as anything. Yeah, I'd have been absolutely bricking it, but you no, know, it, it, it worked brilliantly that one. Yeah, yeah, but I, it's it, it's it does sort of help to sort of um, you know because um, I, I, well I, I've said this many times, but um, when I was a kid, I had to go through uh, speech therapy, right? And, um, and so it, it kind of helps listening back to yourself and listening how how you actually talk you know and how you know you get your point over and asking questions and stuff like that so i think from that point of view it's 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 helped me and mm. you know and and yeah and people people do listen to it i mean it, it kind of like sounds like we're sort of you know uh <laughs> you know patting each other on the back well why not <laughs> you know yeah i know and you know sort of self grand grandinizing but it's um yeah, it's 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 very enjoyable is the thing it's very enjoyable and it's um and i do i i, I have a lot of fun doing this and i get to you know talk to people in the industry about what they do and that's that's the one thing i've always loved about the film industry is the fact that you meet people and you all have the same interest which is film but then you can hear all these different stories and talk about different aspects because as people do so much different jobs on a on a film set and in you know in post production and everything else. Yeah, film film's a big subject, and you know it's it's fun to see you guys sort of embracing all, all aspects of it and and doing a really good job. So so yeah, there you go, good job, well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh so um so do you think you're you're gonna get onto the b's now well um <laughs> let's oh, we get out of the a's I, I well i tell you what all i will say is wait and see like i say we should we'll be relaunching in the next week to fortnight and um it's going to be a very different experience is all is all i'll tell you about that so um yeah, wait and see, wait and see. I, I, I hope you're going to enjoy what we've done, uh, the changes that we're making. Excellent, excellent. Does that end it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so um, we always sort of end by asking people where um, where people can find your work online or if they can con- or where they can contact you. So, uh, Rob, where can we find your work? Okay, well, I've got a YouTube channel. Um, I guess the best bet is to is to search youtube under under rob wickings you should be able to find me there um i'm very active on twitter you can find me as konohito that's c-o-n-o-j-i-t-o um and obviously the podcast is is the main creative push at the moment um you can find us on uh youtube uh, not on YouTube, sorry. You can find us on iTunes, on Facebook and Twitter if you search for the A to Z of SFF. But the main landing point um, for the podcast is 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 its own website, which is the A to Z of SFF dot com. Um, so I think they'll pretty much do it. <laughs> <laughs> that certainly will. Yeah. Uh, and as always, you can find my work at uh, independentrunnings.com. And you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and YouTube. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook 
and on Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And uh, please do leave us a review and rating on iTunes and Stitcher. It all helps. So that just leaves me to say uh, thank you to our guest. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real, real blast today. (laughs) And um, yes, and uh, look forward to our next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell.